0: everybody. We've got another episode of Aspie and Menopause. We're very, very lucky to have Maria Weekly here today. She is an expert in Stonehenge, goddesses, earth energies, spirals, and so much more. She is also the author of The Secret History of Stonehenge. Thank you, Maria. Thanks for having me, Wendy. One of my friends, she wanted to know, he says, I had heard that Stonehenge was used as a portal and an interdimensional stargate but that it was largely dismantled to stop it being misused with the approach of the Dark Ages. Could you please ask Maria for her take on that? Okay,
1: sure. Well, I am a second generation master dowser. I inherited numerous surveys of ancient sites from other master dowsers beside my late father. I have always grown up visiting ancient sites and interacting with Earth energies. So it's almost like it's in my DNA. I really do enjoy going to these wondrous ancient sites across the world. And my my book, The Secret History of Stonehenge, is being edited now. It's not exactly out just yet, but will be out in a couple of months' time. Now, the word portal has been fashionable for the past 10 years. Previous to that word, in the realms of Earth Mysteries, they were called Earth Gates, And it has long been said that Stonehenge was dismantled because of that. I doubt that very, very much because it was ransacked by the Beaker culture in 2500 BC. So literally with with the new evidence that's coming out from the archaeological community, we know with certainty that it was reset and redesigned several times and then dismantled then, but in a ruinous way, not in a, in a neat way, and it was because of two different cultures were clashing at that time: the Neolithic ancient Britons and the European Beaker culture. And their clash and fight for Stonehenge, in a way, was underway from about two thousand five hundred BC to two thousand BC. As its use of a portal, well, that is speculation. It does attract uh, unidentified flying objects, but for the 30 or 40 years actually that I've been going there I, I think it's active at some times and not at others and regardless of whether stones are moved or not, in douseable terms they leave behind their etheric outlines so they may have been pushed over and toppled and removed, but a ghostly image of that which was is left behind that you can still douse it's called a remnant feature. To be okay. trained does help because if you went to an ancient site and you just had a pair of dowsing rods you could be picking up on grid lines underlying underground water of various types and ley lines and earth currents and earth voltages the thing about dowsing is being able to accurately interpret that which you have found after a while it becomes very easy if you know the basic of say 10 different types of energy then you'll be able to interpret that through how your body feels as much as how the dowsing rods react. So the way that I teach dowsing is to recognize a particular energy by how your body reacts to it as well. So it's a combination of body dowsing and literally hands-on dowsing.
0: And when you say these feelings are in your body, is that something that we all used to have the abilities to feel but we've just become lazy or out of tune?
1: I think there's been a disconnect between us and nature that has been going ongoing for many centuries. And the way that I teach it, my students instantly understand what I mean, especially if you take someone to places like Stonehenge, Avebury Henge, and numerous Neolithic and Bronze Age monuments across the world. They have this particular way of making you feel relaxed or, or even the opposite, boosting your energy levels and recognizing these you can then identify them in other parts of the world, even your own back garden. Well, in terms of Earth energy, it's speculation what causes them. I mean, we can read signals that are electromagnetic in nature and record those signals coming out of the stones or out of the ground. So we know that to some regard, they're electromagnetic. And also with ionization levels, we know that that's underground water because underground water will produce ions. So we can decode to a certain regard. But there is certain energies which do baffle us. Are they gravitational? Are they down to the atomic level? It's kind of like that we're just rediscovering the wisdom of the ancient past and we're using our language to try and understand it through science. But I think there's far more
0: to be learned. And you were talking about a unique priestesshood of Europe and Neolithic queens of Stonehenge. Can you please talk about these ancient people? Because I certainly didn't learn about them at school, and I I don't know if it was in the UK curriculum back then.
1: Oh, no, it wasn't in the UK curriculum. It was a discovery of mine in 2015, because I was investigating the Neolithic people. And just for your audience, you know, that's about 5,500 years ago, around about 3600 BC, the very start of Stonehenge and the monumental building program of wondrous stone circles and the like. And I was investigating the people of the past, and particularly one long barrow, which was the largest in northwest Europe. And I traced the remains, the human remains, back to Cambridge University. And there I went to visit uh, the skull and realized it was lengthened, it was elongated. And then I made the discovery that all of the Neolithic people from the long Barrows phase, also had long skulls as well. So the the long-skulled people intriguingly went into the long barrows. And then when the European beaker culture crossed over to the British Isles around about 2,500 BC, they were far taller with round skulls and only round-skulled people were placed in round barrows. So it's very intriguing, the history of the past, that isn't taught in mainstream schools, colleges or universities, although it is eking in now a little bit more in the archaeological community. That's incredible,
0: elongated skull people in England. I mean, it's something you hear about in like Egyptian pyramids, but not here.
1: (laughs) Exactly. I mean, it really is. A wonderful discovery because it speaks about the people of the past, a long lost history that has laid forgotten for many years. When I looked at the last person that had visited and observed that Scarlet Cambridge, it was in the 1930s. Oh my
0: goodness, almost 100 years ago.
1: Exactly. So I I think some of the creators don't know what they've got in their collection because it's vast. I mean, the where, not the warehouse, the, the complex that I was in, uh, in Cambridge. I mean, it was so, so fast. It must have contained thousands of skulls from Egypt, Abydos on one side and Stonehenge on the other. In some of their guidebooks, they do the different phases though. So you've got phase one, two, three, four and five of Stonehenge, which were created by different cultures that were the coming over. So it's, it's multifaceted and quite complex, Stonehenge when you come to its archaeological dating and what it looked like. So right at the very end, that's the Stonehenge that we are familiar with today. But going back to its uh, phase two, it was a little bit different. And when the beaker culture came over here, the tall round skull people, they uprooted some of the blue stones and created a new setting, kind of making it their own.
0: Okay, a bit like the way churches and temples get built on top of sacred sites and piled on top of each other as time goes along.
1: Exactly. I mean, it's it's not one timeline. Stonehenge spans a thousand years
0: of prehistoric history. These original elongated skull people, where did they come from?
1: It's believed with the ADNA, that's ancient DNA testing, that originally going back a long time, it was more towards the, the Russian steppes and there was like a migration program that went on uh, the DNA certainly suggests that, and then another migration probably coming up from sort of like the Spain area as well, and when it came to the Beaker uh, culture, they were coming down from the Netherlands as well, so it 's really walking across Europe at different phases when p- people of different influences came in.
0: How did they actually get the stones there that because the um, the actual materials don't exist nearby, do they?
1: No, there was no natural stone on the Salisbury Plain. It was very tree-covered at one time, and then the trees were cut down, and it was made into a plain. That's in prehistoric times. There's a different variety of stones at Stonehenge. You have the very large stones. They're called sarsens. They come from westwards, about 17 miles to the north of Stonehenge and then you have what's called the Welsh Bluestones and they come from about 170 miles away the sarsens can weigh up to the trilithon settings, that's the two stones with a stone lintel on top at Stonehenge can weigh up to 95 tons as a stone setting. the smaller bluestones which are more human sized that came from Wales weigh about 2 tons each but there was 86 stones moved from Wales to the Salisbury Plain. Several of those stones, it is now known, are by Professor Mike parker Pearson, who discovered that they were uprooted from an original stone circle in Wales. And then transported. So we're only just uncovering the lost history of the Welsh bluestones. And they are very beautiful. They're called bluestones because when they're wet with rain or water applied to them, they turn this beautiful midnight blue colour. We see Stonehenge through thousands of years of weathering. But when it was pristine, it would have been a beautiful sight to behold. Because the sarsons, which are worked, made into lozenger shape they would have glinted silver and they have a very quartz like sparkle to them and as you moved inside of the stone circle you would encounter the highly polished blue stones which would look like a blue color specked with felspar of white looking like the star spangled sky it was a sight to behold if you go in the right way into Stonehenge through the avenue and in the footsteps of your ancestors, and you visualize what it would have looked like. Certain stones that don't have any of the lichen covering on them, you can still see the quartz, almost diamond like glint that they have. It would have been a, a really tremendous sight. And then, as you went to the holiest of holies, heading towards the altar stone at Stonehenge, that was a very tall stone, 10 foot plus. Glinting with garnet, mica, and a green colour. So it was so colourful in the ancient world, Stonehenge, it stood out as a stone circle, second to none. What was the actual purpose of Stonehenge? I think all stone circles are multifaceted. They're not just one thing. It's a bit like a church. It's used for christening, deaths, marriages, uh, a place where you go for comfort and for healing, and Stonehenge is very similar to that. It, all stone circles have some astronomical alignments to them. That's not unique because in the ancient world, there were eight key points of the calendar, which are the solstices and four other days in between those times. And so you get a lot of stone circles, standing stones aligned specifically to those calendrical dates. They are, in the Druid tradition, believed to be the times when the veil between this world and the next is thinnest. Also, at places like Stonehenge, you have the sun and the moon alignments. You have many numerous healing earth energies imbuing the stones. And when we look back to the 12th century, And an author called Geoffrey of Monmouth, who wrote The History of the Kings of Britain, he said that all of the stones at Stonehenge had healing properties. So I see it as a healing temple amongst other things as well, which I explore in my forthcoming book. So again, we need to step back into time and think what were our ancestors up to? Yes, they were needing a time in calendrical system for seasonal activities to do with agriculture but they also that's a physical understanding of time but then there was also other metaphysical aspects to do with the stones and I think one of which was healing attributions which they gathered people from far and wide to come to Stonehenge. Because when you look at the grave goods buried in the round barrows that surround Stonehenge, and there were 800 round barrows in two concentric circles, all gleaming white, looking almost like a star-spangled planisphere around Stonehenge it has been likened to. From some of those barrows, you find beads from ancient Egypt, amber from Estonia, We know that Stonehenge was attracting other cultures as
0: far away as Egypt and probably beyond. Does that indicate people were seeing it as like a pilgrimage and bringing things as a thank you and leaving them behind?
1: I think it was more like trade because the artefacts that have been found were grave goods made into jewellery for staffs. Along those lines, I think it was trade as well. We were exporting a lot of grain at that time. It was recorded by Diodorus and other Greek chroniclers and Roman chroniclers alike that we were producing vast amounts of spelt and wheat. So it's probably a unique trading network throughout the known world. And Stonehenge was the jewel of Albion.
0: How would people actually getting there? Were they going on foot or on horseback? It's believed when
1: you go back to the Neolithic era that if you carry on in a straight line, which I would say was a ley line, if you carry on from Stonehenge and you draw near enough a a straight line, you will hit the coast, the Dorset coast. And if you go beyond Christchurch, archaeologists have now discovered a Neolithic port. So that strongly suggests trade by boat, just like we do today. We trade by boat or train or aeroplanes. They were doing that thousands and thousands of years ago. They were doing it by boat way back in the Neolithic, so they would have had the technology to build waterproof
0: boats for sure. How did people physically move such heavy objects such a distance? I mean, people think they were levitated or they had anti-gravity Techniques.
1: Well, I mean, theories abound, and they are just theories. I think they were using the earth currents because wherever you have stone circles, you have earth currents. And when we measured some at Avebury, which you can't do today, we put long copper probes into the ground many years ago. And we got signals back. And we did a control outside of that earth current as well. And we didn't get anything. So we know that there's signals going through the earth. And there, some of those were about 25 hertz. If ancient man had the technology to change that sound frequency to 25 kilohertz, that's the kilohertz frequency of levitation. And maybe they were making the stones somewhat lighter. I don't think they were making them like float through the air because you see abandoned stones everywhere. So, for example, there's abandoned bluestones not far from Stonehenge, which if it was that easy to export all of these stones, why make these mistakes? So I I think, you know, when we look back realistically, I think there is lost technology to be explored, but maybe not so fantastic as how we are
0: projecting onto the ancient past. But it, they lightened the weight enough that these massive of things could be moved.
1: Yes, I mean, they were making them lighter as well before they transported some of the stones as well by dressing them away from the site, it is now known. And some were dressed and by dressed, I mean, tapping them into that lozenger shape so some of them were made lighter before they went and again that strongly indicates that if they could use levitation they were still making it easier for themselves so I that's why I don't see it as really floating along particular ley lines I think they were using the earth currents which are a little bit stronger in a hertz frequency than any ley but nonetheless there are secrets and mysteries to the ancient past that can simply not be solved with archaeology in Madagascar as archaeologists point out they still move tonnage and tonnage of stones which they have as like giant gravestones to effect. so when somebody dies the whole community comes out and and those that are interested in looking how they move the stones they are dragging them but they're The whole community came out to do that. And you even have people dancing on top of them. They turned it into a festival, which leads some archaeologists to believe that they were doing that to some of the stones. It's possible. Whereas the latest book on Stonehenge by archaeologist Mike Pitts, How to Build Stonehenge, he suggests that they were making almost like cradles for them and carrying them across the landscape the blue stones that is not necessarily the large assassins so theories do abound and i think if we mix a bit of practicality with spirituality we're probably pretty on the money it's absolutely fascinating and have you been to places
0: like delphi
1: Yes, I've been to Delphi many times because it links in mythologically with Stonehenge. You had the healing god of Apollo that resides at Delphi. He would leave Delphi at the winter solstice. And according to old cog almanacs, that's old-fashioned calendars that the illiterate people had with symbols on them, rather than saying February the 1st, they would have a symbol for that day. And according to these old almanacs, then, Apollo resided at Stonehenge at the winter solstice and Delphi has some immense earth energies there as does Stonehenge.
0: So is there any connection between Newgrange and Stonehenge was it the same people that that built those?
1: I think the Irish would like to claim (laughs) the the Irish sites uh, and (laughs) the, the the English sites. They're two different styles of building and construction Newgrange is really a bad reconstruction. Archaeologists now know, not presume, that the frontage that they've made with the quartz crystal on the front of Newgrange went over the top of Newgrange so it'd been gleaming crystal white uh, of the Khan. so the the styles were very different and even if you go in different parts of england the style of monument changes especially the long barrows and that's the era that you're looking at with newgrange in ireland so they're quintessentially irish
0: the water your discovery about yin water
1: well, as a water diviner, and growing up with water divining for a fun pastime before I became professional, you know, so I, I was brought up with finding water to to be something fun to do with, you know, your good old fashioned bent coat hangers that you used to have back in back in the day, and after inheriting lots of different surveys by master dowsers, I began to realize that. Certain energy patterns, especially the spiral, the geospiral energy pattern, is associated with very, very deep aquifers. These aquifers are... Water that is chemically produced within the earth itself and that will generate a spiral pattern. Whereas groundwater, which is rainwater that falls from the sky, fills up the rivers and aquifers, that generates a different type of energy pattern in water divining terms. So you would bore for particular types of water that are closer to the surface. A, it makes it cheaper. And the water is very fresh as well, because some of the very deep aquifers associated with Avebury Henge, for example, have been dated by the water board to 30,000 years old. That's when that rainwater fell and it's collected wow. in like lakes beneath the ground that is generating energy Ions changing the hertzian frequency to seven hertz, which brings your brain into that alpha meditative relaxing mode an underground lake close to the surface, that's groundwater, rainwater that fell recently or thousands of years ago, for example. And then much, much deeper below that, you have the yin water aquifers, which are chemically produced within the body of the Earth. And this is why I've always predicted that on other rock planets, be that Mars, for example, a close companion to Mother Earth, They will find water there because it's generated within the planet as well as in atmospheric conditions. When we think about it in logical terms, Gaia, Mother Earth, makes sulfur, plutonium, uranium, silver, gold. Why not? Water. So I see it as just another element that she produces and she produces remarkable things other than water as well. It's it's quite something, you know, this beautiful body that we live upon and all the resources that she gives us. It is truly a magical place, Mother Earth. Oil, gold, whatever you are dousing for, has its own frequency in dousing terms and its own energy pattern in dowsing terms. It's like the secret language of Mother Earth. And one of the, the first to recognize this was the master dowser Tom Lethbridge, where he realized everything the Gaia produces has a rate. And that rate can be measured by a particular size chord of pendulum dowsing. For example, by that, I mean, 26 and a half inches or a harmonic of that, divided by two, divided by four would be a harmonic of uh, 26 and a half inches, is the rate of underground water. So he realised that everything has a resonance that you can douse for and locate through how many times the pendulum will spin round. It will spin round 26 times for underground water, so many times for gold, oil, and so on and so forth.
0: Well, I'm just getting impressions of geologists being put out of work here, Maria, with them. <laughs> <laughs> it's an alternative way
1: to understand the Earth and through the energy patterns, its rate, but to have that kind of honoring of those energies because each one can you know gives a different level of awareness for us by that, I mean you've got some immensely healing earth energies, others that I mentioned before that stimulate you, and they're the type of energies that wildebeest would follow. And migrating animals because they can maintain that energy level. And some of our ancient roads going back to the Mesolithic time, 12,000, 10,000 years ago called ridgeways here they follow those identical track lines so when you walk along these energy lines associated to these old roads or trackways your energy levels aren't depleted and animals know what's good for them don't they we've kind of lost that connect well some of us have lost that connect with with Gaia and the animals don't they recognize that they can utilize these energies and so they do for vast migrationary purposes
0: Well, I'm now thinking of the elephants in Namibia that find water, that find the melons in the sand, and then also the aboriginal people doing the dream, um, walking the lines and being able to find water and food in the land. Um, without any sort of external GPS.
1: Interestingly, when you compare the earth energy patterns of the genetic system of earth energies, which is just like a whole load of earth energies under a title, and you compare those patterns to do with water to an aboriginal expression of a water hull, they're identical. And they are using those patterns of, of Mother Earth and the song lines that wiggle. They're not necessarily straight. like The Seven Sisters song line is a weavy, wave-like line. They're just called uh, lines that again follows these wonderful earth currents in the line. So the, the Aborigines have such a close connection to what I would say is the Celtic wisdom here. It's phenomenal. For example, it was the geomancer, the late and great John Michel, who always said in some of his writings that ley lines are guarded by a black dog. And this is why you have lots of pubs along straight tracks in England called the Black Dog Inn or whatever. Oh. And when When I was teaching a student of mine uh, in Australia who had the privilege of being able to speak to the elders there, I certainly didn't speak to any elder there. But nonetheless, when I was talking about the black dog that guards the lays, he said, ah, the elders call that boss dog. They guard the song lines as well. So the cultures, again, even though they're on the other side of the world, have similar mythologies uh, the holy history associated to ley lines, for example. And when we think about dogs, you've got the jackal headed god Anubis. You've got Cerberus to the ancient Greeks, all guardians to the, to the portals of the underworld and, and different realms and dimensions.
0: If walking these lines gives you energy, then it would explain how people or animals would be able to migrate such long distances.
1: Yes, that's what I'm saying. You know, they know what's good for them, animals, and they will follow particular lines, even across fields themselves. You look at a field full of sheep and you see them all following one another through a little trackway and it will make an indentation in the earth itself. And they're following what's called track lines which uh, as a harmonic surface pattern that's the energy pattern that track line emits it's three sets of lines or waves we we say line but apart from lays and grid lines they're always meandering like rivers so these track lines that meander like rivers are three lines a gap and another three lines so that's if you were dousing it you would you'd look for six six reactions to the dowsing rod, for example, but spend some time just meditating above that energy line and you do feel energized. So they're great places to go if you feel that you want to recuperate,
0: for example, from an illness. That's interesting because this morning I went for a very short walk before the podcast and it was just on the paving and the tarmac and it was just such an um, effort to keep the legs moving and I'm thinking back to going on the hill where the sheep go and I do often walk where their little feet have gone and they your legs kind of move themselves they feel like they're propelled from underneath
1: <laughs> exactly I mean that's a really good example of your own experience with with walking on sacred energies and on profane areas do you see what I mean and the the ancients mm. were so aware mm. of this and that's why you have Long avenues that lead sometimes of stones to places like Avery Henge Stone Circles, where you have these megalithic avenues that can go on for one and a half miles. And, and between Karnak and Luxor Temple, you have roughly the same with sphinxes joining those two temples together. And they are also on these amazing earth currents that generate an energetic force that will allow you to walk with ease into the temple and as you're walking into these places your consciousness changes and you're in an altered state of consciousness because of all the different frequencies that the earth um, is, is emitting like i said over the geospiral energy pattern you'll be brought into an alpha mode so all of these subtle effects are happening
0: just through walking into a temple space no mushrooms no chocolate just finding these energy lines and you just feel awesome if we're looking to the ancient past
1: and you're looking to great britain and some of the feasting debris left behind for example they loved alcohol fruity beverages and and they would fill cauldrons up to the brim with fruity <laughs> alcohol so i think you know they had the party spirit about them and and some Other finds have suggested that they were using some forms of hallucinogenics as well. So it was a combination of of different things. But some of their feasting sites are uh, incredible with the debris that they left behind. And then you just get, you know, you analyze what they contained and you can sort sort out what they were eating, what they were drinking. I think they were having a good time at some of these places. (laughs) The first thing that the ancients would be looking for would, would be to decode Gaia's energies, what type of energy is there that's going to energize it, you know, whether that's the different sort of energies that we've been discussing or others besides. That's the first thing they would look for. And it changed from the circle of the stone circle building phase of the Bronze Age to the early Christians and Templars, etc. They were looking for more of a cross in the landscape where you get one earth current and you get another one transversing it. So it kind of makes a cross. That cross could be kind of wonky. It doesn't have to be Straight, but that tends to decree the sacred space now, when you then start putting sacred geometry on that, whether that 's the vesca Piscis and different styles of geometry like that, then you 're adding to the building program and the stained glass windows for example are aligned above particular types of earth currents that flow through the earth and that's why when you go into an early medieval cathedral or church they're never opposite each other in modern day building you tend to have in the churches at least you have a window opposite a window a window opposite a window you don't get that in medieval cathedrals you get it more hot there may be one on one side and not on the other that's because they're reading the energy in the ground and from that you can draw sacred geometry upon which Keith Critchlow like I said was was the master in but what they discovered was that the earliest church in Christendom which was a small circular church where Glastonbury Abbey now stands it's long gone it was a what's called A Wattle and Daub church with sort of, sort of like a thatch roof, circular, big circular building. That sacred geometry of the the twelve star sacred geometry was taken from Stonehenge. Even the width of the building, the first church of Christendom, which is seventy nine point seventy nine feet twenty inches across, which is the diameter of the bluestone circle at Stonehenge. Change feet to miles and multiply that by 100, and you've got the diameter of Earth in those two structures. So the sacred geometry even includes the diameters of the Earth and the moon. How did they know the the size of things? Well, again, they clearly were master astronomers that could measure the diameter of the earth. I mean, when we look to our school books, we started this discussion, Wendy, with you weren't taught this at school. Uh, What you are taught at school, uh, nine times out of 10, is depicting the stone age, the Neolithic, that means the new stone age, is people dressed in animal skins, with scruffy hair, looking dirty, on the ground, squatting, playing with a fire, or with a bow, bow and arrow but they were so, so sophisticated. They were master geomancers, master astronomers whose wisdom, whose depth of knowledge we're only starting to rediscover with a disciplines like sacred geometry and dowsing alike. When we look back to what was created with all of the energies, the sacred geometry, they also would link heaven to earth in that as well. So you would have the astronomical alignments to the summer solstice, the spring equinox, and more importantly, as well as the sun, which is very famous at places like Stonehenge, the moon is far, far more complicated in its cycle, which is over 18.61 years. And that's when the full moon will rise at its most northerly within two hours in the same place, its previous rise 18.61 years ago it's called the moon's platonic cycle really complex to work out even with software I have to check and check and check and I'm using astronomical software but the neolithic mathematical mind could calculate that to the day and align standing stones to that wonderful most northerly moonrise that only happens every roughly 19 years. That's a wonder itself to watch. I mean, it really is. And I discovered at Avebury that the cove stones were aligned to that most northerly moonrise. And I photographed it in 2006, the first person in the world to do that. So I felt very in touch with the feminine side of Avebury there. And we're coming up to 2025, that same alignment again. And it's so rare. And I believe that when I was there, and we were just with a handful of people, and I had my calculations checked by the then workable aspect of the Greenwich Observatory. It's now more sort of like a charity work. But back then, they helped me with the, the calculations. And it's when you feel the divine feminine, the moon is totally powerful. In fact, On the night of the high moon, that's what it's called, because the moon is so high north, it can't get any higher. It's the longest night of moonlight. A bit like the summer solstice is the longest day of daylight. That time is the opposite.
0: Oh, wow. 2025. Mm. And I will be leading
1: a tour to show exactly where you can see that because the ancients calculated particular stones to face its rising and its setting. So you've got various points at Avebury Henge where you will be able to see this wonder. And when it rises, and you've got a window of a few months. So if it's cloudy on one day, you start early and then you hopefully eventually see it. And then it is like a silver ball of divine bright light. It is so, so bright, the night of the longest moon. And it almost feels like, you know, you're being bathed in this moonlight that changes your consciousness, the rising of the divine feminine with the rising of the moon.
0: That sounds incredible. <laughs> it will be. To do it over nineteen years, it's just phenomenal to think someone could actually track that time, you know, without um
1: calculators. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I mean by master astronomers. And they mm. did that whole cycle at Stonehenge. So when people say and gather at the summer solstice to watch the sun rise over the heelstone, any archaeological-minded astronomer, archaeoastronomist, calculated that it's a degree out. It appears to arise roughly above the Heelstone. But going back five and a half thousand years ago when the Heelstone was actually raised, it marked the midpoint cycle of the 18.61 years. So every nine years, the moon rises directly above the Heelstone to the exact degree the sun is a degree out so when we look back and see that what a sight to behold and also because Stonehenge can predict eclipses according to Gerald Hawkins back in the 60s and Sir Fred Hoyle who was a, a royal astronomer here in the British Isles at the winter solstice if the moon rising above the heel stone, does so around the solstice time it matches the time of an eclipse and then it will rise blood red above the heelstone. stone what a wonder to see that to visualize to be a part of that energetic process when you do something physically what i think they were doing in the ancient world they were doing something metaphysically To be in resonance with that. So, at the height of the sun, that's the height of the masculine power, the height of the light once a year at the summer solstice. And likewise for the feminine energies to do with all of those different moon cycles.
0: Can you please talk about the goddess energy and Gaia?
1: When we analyze, look, interact, sensitize ourselves to the goddess aspect of earth energy, it is really quite incredible because. Gaia emits these beautiful spirals and waves that rise up. Imagine earth energy is rising up out of the ground and encompassing your body, rising up when you're interacting with goddess earth energies, the feminine earth energies. Then they are soothing and meditative and I believe they can increase your intuition, calm you down. Whereas some of the masculine Earth energies, for example, are more stimulating. Like I mentioned earlier, like the track lines, and you've experienced that walking sheep lines, you know, on your hills. They They stimulate. So we have male and female Earth energies. And I think that the goddess expression of Gaia, she wants us to reconnect with these, like our ancient ancestors incorporated them into their monumental building program, but also into their domestic dwellings as well. So they were living above calming earth energies. And I think if we integrate that understanding into a modern context and place different types of constructs above these energies, you can get, you will have a much more calmer community for instance. So I think there's ways in which we can work with the the aspect of goddess energies to better humanity, to better our communities as well. I mean, when we plant a tree, for example, certain trees like certain types of earth energy. So when we think about planting trees, we could be in resonance with the energies that that tree likes and we could be a part of the tree planting right that we see today with people, you know, plant planting trees. So I, I see earth energy and then the goddess aspect especially helping us to help humanity move
0: forward on many different levels. I've heard it said that plants will grow where they feel happiest.
1: Oh, absolutely. Because if uh, if a seed landed, for example, of a fruit bearing tree, let's just say the apple for, for argument's sake, everybody knows what an apple tree is like. Then if that landed on the curry grid, it's not going to be prosperous there. It's not going to grow that well there, planted away from that. And it will it will grow very well indeed. So it, it's, again, it's being attracted to certain earth energies that are going to benefit different types of species. For example, cats, they like negative energy. They like what's called geopathic stress. They They thrive on it. In the wild, not when you're on your sofa and you're stroking a cat. Obviously, it just wants attention. But when you look to where cats sleep naturally by themselves, then that could be potentially above geopathic stress. So it's different species interact with Gaia's energies in many different ways. The curry grid, which has been thoroughly explored by Dr. Kathy Batchelor and many doctors, MDs, physicians, what they uh, realized was that round about three to four o'clock in the morning, it becomes Uh, like an energy search. I think that's a a simple way to describe it. And that's when people would wake up. Waking up between those hours is a sign of geopathic stress, grinding your teeth, feeling fatigued. And at other times of the day, it's still there but then it's lower. So if we see them as like a graph, you know, with a peak and a trough and a peak and a trough, that's most Earth energies follow those types of patterns. If you imagine for the curry grid, a fishnet thrown over a spherical body like Gaia. She's not a circle. She bulges at the equators and she's more narrower, as it were, flatter at the poles. So you throw fishnet over her, they're going to be tighter in distance around the poles and they're going to be much bigger squares of fishnet around the equator and roughly where we are in england and most parts of america roughly speaking is going to be about 3.5 meters across but that's how we see it here you go somebody somewhere else and it might be bigger it might be smaller So it's just like shifting around, shuffling around the bedroom for a while, and you might get a better night's sleep. But the the fundamental principle is to move away from geopathic stress. And Dr. Kathy Batchelor, she investigated 11,000 houses across Northwest Europe and came to the conclusion that it doesn't matter what type of therapy that you have if you're ill, for example, if you had chemotherapy, if you had acupuncture, if you go back to the geopathic stress zone of which you were sleeping above, your body is exceptionally slow to heal. Dowsing isn't that difficult to do, but the interpretation of what you find, that's the key because your rods will cross on so many different types of energy but that's still fun as well you know that's how i was introduced to to dowson here's some old-fashioned coat hangers maria go out into the garden and uh, tell me what you find so you know it's a wonderful tool that i think is was used thousands and thousands of years ago because especially water divining we are finding neolithic wells bronze age wells for water and there's in the time-honored tradition there's one way that you have found water even going back to the medieval times and that's with a good old-fashioned dousing twig and i think that's how they were finding water in the neolithic and one of the oldest monuments dating back much much older than any monument in the british isles uh found off the off the coast of israel it's underwater now that also had a well and that goes back ten, twelve thousand years ago so we've we've had that in our dna as mankind and womankind for for thousands of years the ability to find invisible things beneath the earth it's in us all because wherever you have mm-hmm. old for example street names here where i live you have one street called saint brideswell now that would mean a breed Uh, Bridget she became Christianized she was always associated with wells she was like the goddess of well in one of her aspects so for instance that's an ancient way saying there was a well here once and it was dedicated to to breed St Bridget so yes place names indicate the past and that's esotericcollege.com one of my Dowson practical courses in July is great fun because we meet at the world's largest stone circle at Avebury Henge and we learn all about the different energies there. It's a university when it comes to learning about Earth energy because it's all there and we can interact with the energies and, and have a really lovely time as well because just being at these ancient sites is is wonderful experience alone. It's something for everyone, no matter where you live on Mother Earth, you can find out about her whispering earth energies well i think we can all reconnect with gaia and the simplest thing is you know wherever you go even if you live in a flat there's parks nearby just go out as we do with uh, and, and walk and just sensitize yourself to the earth energies there and if you look for a yew tree for example that's going to be above a geospiral pattern in its natural growth cycle so we can experience the earth energies in parks in our gardens and then realize that there's far more to mother earth than just the vegetation that we see
0: it's really beautiful and thank you so much you also have got books that people can order as well absolutely fabulous thank you so much maria thank you for having me